In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hi. Hello. How are you? What's going Um, on? Nothing. I have no updates. I have no recommendations this week. Mm. Um, I have some pretty exciting things to talk about on our other podcast. Mm. So for anybody who's listening, uh, who listens to both of our podcasts, the one that comes out probably the same day as this, maybe the week following. Are we a week ahead? We're We're one week ahead on the other podcast. Okay, well, the next Thursday's Cool Story, there's going to be some exciting discussion (laughs) (laughs) don't let that stop you from listening to this week's though (laughs) also true um i don't have a whole lot i have a just a random thing that came up this week that i thought (laughs) i wanted to ask you about okay do you remember well i know that scholastic book fairs were were like state like across the country right that was always a thing in grammar schools yeah yes okay what about it was called book it no i definitely don't remember that Okay, I've seen it pop up on a few, like, reminiscent of the 90s lists. And okay. I'm like, oh, I wonder if it was around. Maybe it was a different name. So basically, I think it was Scholastic that put it on. And it was a program for grammar schools to get, like, kids to read more. Okay. And you got this pin that said Book It on it and had, like, cartoons and had all these, like, um, silhouettes of stars on it. Like, four or five or something. When you say stars, like, five-pointed things or, Correct. like, Lucille Ball? Okay. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but it was uh it was meant for like teachers would give you a star if you read a book and wrote a book report on it okay and then you would take your completed pin to pizza hut and you can get a free personal pan pizza with breadsticks for yourself here's the reason i know that we didn't have that because i don't think we had a pizza hut when i was a kid (sighs) oh man pizza hut what was it what was the like fake pizza (laughs) Place by you. No, well, we no had Domino's. Domino's was the oh, okay, yeah. the fake pizza place. Yeah, we had. I guess we had both, but Pizza Hut was my memory growing up. But what I Red- remembered most about it uh-huh. <laughs> was you'd get these stars, but the sticker was meant to like you know stay on really hard. Okay. These st- these stickers were so hard. Were they like plastic? They were like the kind of sticker that was um 3D. So like you'd press it. Like I had like maybe gel in it or something or like a little oh, bit of air oh i know exactly the stickers you're talking about like the points of the stars were a little bit rounded mm-hmm. and they were like kind of jelly filled yes but yes. if you ever tried to peel it off you were literally gonna like peel your nail off your finger oh yeah the, the star <laughs> would go like in between your nail and your finger and you would just have it permanently lodged in your finger yes and i just was thinking about that first i was like oh my god that's such a memory and then i thought what kind of security did they really, th- like, that's where we're pouring our resources into, making <laughs> sure that little children aren't <laughs> taking the stickers off their bucket? <laughs> I'm not putting sure. putting it on another one? Oh. oh, because you could, like, borrow your friends and go get free <laughs> Pizza Hut. Yeah, yes, I get it. The kind of security they put on these things, like, let the seven-year-old peel the sticker off and just get a pizza unbelievable <laughs> like geez the kind of anxiety i'm thinking i'm gonna attribute the book at stickers <laughs> to a little bit of my anxiety now along with this the uh presidential fitness test oh god the presidential fitness test why are we talking about this it just came up in my mind the <laughs> something from the 90s 
And I was like, hmm, I can talk about this on the podcast. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, um, goodness. Well, I see you also have a recommendation for me or oh, for I us. Oh, I do. I do have a recommendation. We watched it literally two nights ago. Okay. It's called The Mitchells versus The Machines. Okay. And I think Davey might have texted you or Miles about it because after we watched it, he was like, oh my God, I want to tell everyone about this movie. <laughs> Oh, he did. He was like, get some tissues and put this movie on. That's right. (laughs) Yes, it was so good. I'm highly recommending it. It came out this year. Incredible. I just loved it. I loved it. Well, I'm excited. Thank you. I... I will... Is... Okay, tell me a little bit more. Give it... Give me, like, a a genre. It's animated. Let's start there. I like that. So, and it's kind of in the same style of... Did you see the the Spider-Verse? Into the Spider-Verse? I did, yes. Okay, I think it's made in a similar animation style, but, you know. Okay. And it's um, a group of... It's a, you know, four-person family, and they have a pug. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they're, like, kind of the weird family, you know. They're not perfect. They're all kind of quirky fail at different things that they try and whatever Mm. okay and it's about the the eldest daughter is about to go off to college and like find her people and then there's a robot apocalypse oh my god yes and then they're they're kind of like stuck in the middle of it (laughs) so they have to figure out how to survive an apocalypse while being bad at everything yes and it's really good it's obviously like fun in that way but it's also you know like most of these animated movies, they tug at your heartstrings. I still need to watch Iron Giant because I'm told that that is a movie you just cry and cry and cry at. It's funny. I've never seen Iron Giant and Davey is like always telling me I have to watch Iron Giant uh, with him. Yeah. But yeah, highly recommend. It's a really good feel-good movie for anyone out there who's looking for something just like nice. But that's all I got. Okay, Matt. So I ha- do actually have a story for you though. Oh, great. Okay. Okay, somebody sent me a video, and it's a video of one of those dogs who's really, really intelligent, and the owner has, like, built a keyboard for it to, like, send messages to its owner so it can talk to them. Those are the best. I know, right? And this dog was typing out the most amazing message, and it was that Ripped from the Headlines now has a Patreon. What? I know. Can you (sighs) believe Bow, wow, wow. Yippee, oh, yippee, yay. <laughs> Can you believe it, ladies? So if you like our podcast and you want to listen to more of it and you want to support us, go to our Patreon. You can go to our website, RippedHeadlinesPod.com. The Patreon has three tiers. Uh, the first one is just a dollar a month, and it gives you the good feeling of supporting a podcast that you love. Uh. The $5 a month tier has a... A couple more perks, including a video episode of Matt and I recapping the fashion from the previous month's episodes of Law & Order. (laughs) We call it Fashion Court. And our $10 a month tier also gets you a few more perks, but possibly the most exciting one is bonus episodes every month of us recapping Law & Order SVU. So Uh I'm just really grateful that that dog typed out that message on that keyboard so that we could share that information with people. Me too. I mean, that must have been rough. Oh, God. (laughs) I gotta go. (laughs) It's been nice. Well, are you now ready to hear about the episode? I just, I almost forgot to watch the episode this week, on a side note. (laughs) I was like, okay, my research is done. I've kind of got it outlined. What am I missing? Oh, wait. Yeah. Actually watching the show. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm, spoiler alert. I don't think you would have missed much, frankly. Ooh, burn. Yeah. 
So this is season two, episode 11. The episode title is His Hour Upon the Stage. We Mm. open on a dark and stormy night. (laughs) I think it's night. It was dark. There was rain. And (laughs) we're (laughs) we're seeing a sanitation truck. And the two drivers are having some inane conversation, probably complaining about their spouses because that's all they can ever do. (laughs) Sure. And one of them gets out to, like, you know, attach the dumpster to the garbage truck so that it can empty it. And then you hear, like, and he's calling to the driver of the truck who comes around and they see a body inside of the truck or inside of the dumpster. P.S. That body is wearing a ruffle collar shirt like it's Dracula or something. <laughs> I I couldn't understand what was happening, but I was pretty sure we were about to go into some kind of vampire movie. They were like, we want to show you that this guy's dressed up nice. What is the most garish costume <laughs> element we could put on him? And first they went for like a huge feather boa with a headdress of feathers. And they're like, you know what? That's a little too much. Let's just go for the the piratey. Yep. The pirate ruffle shirt. God. If you've ever seen that episode of Seinfeld, that's the shirt he's wearing. 100%. So Logan and Soretta arrive, and we learn that the body is wet. (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, that was a very important plot point very early on. They were like, he's wet. And they think he might have drowned, but they also see gunshot wounds. So Logan and Soretta are like, so... You think he was shot and also drowned and then dumped in a dumpster? And all, when they got to this point and combining it with the ruffle collar, I thought for a minute we were going to have an episode about, like, Rasputin. You know, how, <laughs> how he was, like, shot and hit over the head and stabbed and thrown in a river. But no. Wow, really modernizing. <laughs> <laughs> they were really ripping from some old headlines for it's this like, episode. It's like the Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, Romeo and Juliet. Yes. <laughs> I love Romeo and Juliet. Oh, me too. The Leo and Kate one. Kate? Claire. Oh, Claire Danes, not Kate Winslet. Sorry. Do you remember the soundtrack? Of course. It was a phenomenal soundtrack. They made really good soundtracks in, in like, that time period. They sure did. Cruel Intentions was another, like, amazing. So good. All right, let me stop. (laughs) I've been listening to a lot of, like, (laughs) 90s. I don't even know how to classify it. To me, it's almost... Alternative? No, it's like rock that's making fun of itself or rock that's like, knows it's kind of stupid. It's like Fountains of Wayne and Weezer. Oh, yeah. How would you classify that? I wouldn't put Weezer in that category, but I know what you mean. Um, They have a song about undoing your sweater. That's a great sweater. It's a great great song, (laughs) but it's silly. Yeah, I guess they, you know, okay. Buddy Holly, that's silly. Yeah. Um... I don't know. I I think it's like either the pop punk stuff like Fountains mm. of Wayne and like Good Charlotte and all that stuff and then Stacy's Mom and whatever. Listen, Stacy's Mom that. is a really good song. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to the episode. So, at the hospital, we learn that the the body, the man, he was shot 3 times. PS have to add that the medical examiner in this scene, or the doctor, whoever he is, was hot. He was really hot. I'm glad you called really, him Really, really hot. He will, we'll have to put him on the next episode of Fashion Court. Oh, totally. They usually have that Doogie Howser, um, like, yeah. Seinfeldy looking guy, and they definitely upgraded. Doogie Howser Seinfeld? <laughs> yeah, the Doogie Howser Seinfeld guy. 
Uh, okay, so now we also learn why the body was wet. Because the body was frozen and had apparently been frozen for about four or five years. So they're like, four or five years? And then we get the title sequence. I decide that it's time to pick up a new hobby. So I learned underwater basket weaving and made a few baskets and bowls out of some woven reeds that I soaked in water for a while. And after I built those, I came back and it was just in time for the episode to come back. Did you open up an Etsy shop? Uh, I'm about to. I'll post the link in the description. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) So at the station, they're talking about how they have no leads for this case because it's four or five years old. And they're like, the guy was in a tuxedo. What's going on? They're like, could it be the meatpacking things around there? Is that where he could have been held and frozen? And they're like, no, they don't freeze things. And so they decide to check out local restaurants in the area to see if they can find like restaurant freezers that might have been big enough to hold a body for the last four to five years. They end up at a restaurant called Mario's and they're talking to people there. Logan heads into the freezer and he manages to find, is it a bullet or is it a button from his tuxedo? I thought it was a bullet. Well, it's something that's linking them to this murder or this body. So they bring the men from Mario's restaurant into the station to interrogate them. And they kind of imply that, you know, maybe you're mafia. Maybe you put a hit out on this guy or, you know, you took care of him or whatever. Cragen pulls Soretta aside to tell him that we got the prints back from the body. And the body is identified as Mr. Joshua Foster, who is a Broadway producer. So Mario of Mario's Restaurant says that he discovered the body of, in his freezer and disposed of it. Uh, but he called. He was like, surprise to me, I have nothing to do with this body. It was just in my freezer and I decided to get rid of it. Which is weird because it had been there for five years. I don't really understand why they just kind of let this go, but they let it go. Um, they, he said that he called around. He kind of is also like, but I am mafia and I did call around to a bunch of my family and none of them said that they like whacked anybody. So... Nothing to do with us. Sorry about it. Not ours. So they investigate other employees, but they come up with nothing. So they go to interview the sister of the dead man. And I wasn't sure how to describe her style, but (laughs) she will be on our next episode of Fashion Court because I feel like there's a lot of feelings (laughs) to be had in this outfit. I don't remember her outfit, but I remember her, like, general demeanor and hair and sort yes. of, like, acting. And then yes. I would say the word I would come up with it for it is um, disheveled. Yeah, it's kind of like a Mad Madam Mim style <laughs> outfit and hair. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting guests. <laughs> <laughs> So she says, she's talking about her brother, she loved him, whatever, but she's like, he was a loser, he was such a failure, he was always falling in love, he was fell in love with this actress named Leslie Hart, and she's kind of like, she was trouble, blah, blah, blah. So they go interview Leslie Hart, who, by the way, looks like she is auditioning for the role of Roxy Hart, because she has the exact haircut that, uh, what's her name, Re- uh, Renee Zellweger has in Chicago. She does, she just needs a little finger wave, and it's... Uh, yes. Right there. She also but, could be auditioning for like the role of a uh, of secretary in a sexual. What do you call that? A sexual harassment I, ad. A sexual oh, harassment video. Yes, like a workplace training video. <laughs> yeah, like someone's about to come over to her and be like, "Hey, little lady. Yes. Why don't you put on some lipstick?" And they're gonna walk away, and it's gonna go. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> what would you do in this situation? Exactly. She's also wearing a sweater that is large enough to fit Andre the Giant. It is so oversized, going down to her ankles. 
<laughs> She's got a lot of fashion moments in this episode. She really does. There's some. There's a very big statement brooch that I feel like we'll need to reference in fashion court. Is it the one in, in the actual courtroom? Yes, it you is. You better believe I already have a screenshot of her <laughs> and her attorney's brooch. Oh my god, I can't wait. There was a lot of looks in this episode. A lot of looks being served. Early on, I was like, oh man, this is going to be very like brown and gray suit heavy. But let me tell you, when they started bringing in the female ensemble... They were hit. They were on their A game. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> um, okay, so she doesn't really give them any helpful information besides directing them to Joshua's business partner. And we immediately cut to another scene. And I literally gasped with excitement the minute this started because the scene opens with five, six, seven, eight. And then the cast of a Jane Fonda workout video <laughs> is doing some really terrible theater dance that falls apart pretty quickly. Have you ever seen the chorus line? I've seen Showgirls. Oh, <laughs> never mind. I get it. <laughs> well, uh, never mind then. Never mind. Do you remember the dance scenes in Showgirls? I've actually never seen Showgirls in its entirety. I've only seen the clips that were, you know, oh my the big god! Moments. I would Matt. love to watch Showgirls. We ha- that needs to be top of our list to watch together. It is one of the best worst movies of all time. Oh, I mean, I've heard like legendary <laughs> tales of it and now that elizabeth berkeley's back on tv she I just, is yeah they're doing a reboot thing of essay by the bell i think wow showgirls the one thing i want to say is elizabeth berkeley she is at a level 14 mm-hmm. at all times during the movie <laughs> like she is scream she is chewing the scenery she is just screaming every line i have seen it is some of the screaming clips amazing <laughs> i i love it so much okay i can't wait Da, 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 da. Okay, so Serena and Logan are there to interview Joshua's partner, and he's like, yeah, I didn't really know him that well. We weren't very close. He was just an investor. Sorry, I can't help you. Goodbye. So on the street, Logan and Serena are kind of talking about how it's pretty improbable that this, like, hot girlfriend would be with Joshua, who was kind of an older, penniless loser, according to her, his sister. By the way, they're pretty, everybody's pretty disrespectful to Joshua throughout the entire episode. Like, he's called, like, a fat loser, a fat slob, like, a hundred times in this episode. He really is. They're like, oh, yeah, he died five years ago. Enough time has passed. We can all start unloading. <laughs> right. Honestly. <laughs> so they're talking about how it's super unlikely that somebody who is his business partner in the theater would, like, quote unquote, hardly know him. So they go and kind of talk things over with Cragen. And they're like, we don't have any leads. It's a five-year-old case. Soretta's getting impatient. And just then, we have two moments of my favorite thing that Law & Order does where a character that is never named and we never see again comes over and, like, delivers them case-cracking information. (laughs) So he's like, he just, like, walks. (laughs) It's like he walks on screen, says his line, and just continues walking off screen as he finishes it. He's like, um... Leslie Hart was arrested for, at 22 for prostitution and cocaine possession two years later. And they just, like, walks off screen. <laughs> <laughs> I love when they do that. Yeah. They're like, we don't know how to work this information into any actual detective work, so we're just going to have a random extra say this line. So they go to interview Mr. Highland, who is a music producer or a music writer who is working with Joshua and Gary, who are who is the dead guy and his business partner, who quote-unquote doesn't know him. 
And Mr. Highland is also a friend of Leslie Hart's. So it's kind of like this quattro of of people who know each other, even though they're all like, oh gosh, you know, Josh, I hardly knew him, whatever. So they kind of needle at Mr. Highland for a little bit, and he reveals that the night that he disappeared, Joshua had said that he'd be back at the theater later with good news, which supposedly was going to be a big investment in the production that they were working on together, but Josh never showed up. Hmm. But Gary did show up. He came late, he came alone, and he looked sick. And he told uh, Mr. Highland that he never saw Josh and he had no idea where he was. So currently in the episode, they, re- they know that his business partner was supposed to go to a meeting with an investor with him and that that's the night he disappeared. And his business partner showed up alone without him looking really shaken up. And rather than go immediately question him, they go talk to a bunch of other people first. I was like, go talk to him. He's your suspect. Anyway, so they go back and talk to Leslie. They grill her about her former arrests and ask, like, who would Gary and Joshua have been meeting with to get money for this? Because, like, maybe that person's involved in Joshua's disappearance. She points them to a woman named Marilee Katz, who... I She kind of gives me a little bit of, like, a, a Patty Lapone vibe. Oh, she was the one that we only see, we only see her like once, right? Yes, she yeah. was in a like I think a pretty bright red jacket. She's Patty Lapone, but also Aunt Jackie from Roseanne. <laughs> Ooh, that's a really good. Com- yes, those two together. Mm-hmm. So, in her office, she's like, "I would have never given that play money. Everyone knows that that play was failing, and Joshua was a loser. So I was not going to give them any money. So that scene didn't really matter. <laughs> it was a it was a red herring. Logan and Soretta head back to, I guess, the station or wherever they're processing evidence. And they are talking to the medical examiner or the evidence processing person who's looking at the the tuxedo shirt of Joshua and the gunshot wounds. And I was really excited because Logan touches the shirt with his pen. So I get... One of my pen touching evidence points. Oh, I didn't catch that, but I'll trust you. I, I will very look back and if I have to <laughs> repeal it, I will, but I, I trust you. <laughs> You'll have to submit a formal appeal process. Okay, that's fine. So the medical examiner tells us based on the gunshot patterns that he was sitting down when he was shot. And so they're like, oh, maybe it was in the car that Gary was supposedly in with him when they were on their way to meet this investor. So they ask Gary about it, like, were you in the car with Joshua? And he's like, yeah, whatever. Or, you know, sure, maybe it was my driver. His name was Danner. And I don't know, he was, I fired him. I didn't really know him very well either. This whole episode, everybody's story is, I didn't really know him that well. You know, he's dead or I don't work with him anymore or whatever. They're just, you know, it's five years old. Leave me alone. A lot of shrugging of shoulders and... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So unfortunately, the driver, whose name was Danner, died recently in jail, so they can't question him about the night of of Joshua's disappearance, but they go to interview his old cellmate, because they figured maybe while he was in jail, he talked to his cellmate about the night that Joshua disappeared. Indeed, he did. That cellmate says that it was a paid hit and that Gary, his brother-in-law, is the one who stuck it in his freezer at Mario's. So Gary, the producer, is his brother-in-law is Mario of Mario's restaurant where the body was stored. So things are starting to not look so great for Gary. Mm. 
the brother-in-law confesses <laughs> immediately and says, <laughs> Gary called me, told me he needed a body taken care of, that it was shot in the car, and we just put it in my freezer. They try to track down the car as well to kind of get more information. Again, this whole time, Gary is not in custody, even though everything is leading to him being the primary suspect. So I, I find this odd. They're just, yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. so they try to track down the car. They find it at impound. They take it apart. They find dried blood in the seat. They find wool from the tuxedo. And they find another one of those little pieces of bullet that apparently are just falling out of this guy's body left, right, and center. But they're like, we still don't have a motive. We still don't know why anybody would have killed him. So we can't really prove murder. We need more information. But they do decide to arrest Gary Wallace in the hopes that that will maybe kind of like shake loose a confession or shake loose in a motive that they can use in court. Mm-hmm. So they arrest him. They take him to a uh, a trial hearing. He pleads not guilty. And his lawyer kind of shreds Stone and Robinette because they're like, your case has no motive. Like, you've got a five-year-old case with, like, fibers that maybe he were just in the car anyway because he rode in it. I'm going to tear your case apart. Good luck. But they do find out that the driver who died in prison had lost his license six months prior to Joshua's murder. Uh, when you're convicted of a felony, you apparently can't hold a chauffeur's license in New York, at least in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And... They're like, okay, so he lost his license, so how would he have been this driver? And then we find out that his chauffeur license had been reinstated at a hearing thanks to the impassioned testimony of three character witnesses, Leslie Hart, Gary Wallace, and the songwriter, Mr. Wyland, whose name first name I apparently just never wrote down. Well, well, well. So things are not looking good for all three of them now. They decide that their best bet is to try to crack Wyland. And so they're like saying, you know what? You could be charged with accessory to murder, so you should probably tell us what's happening. And he says that he all he knew was that Leslie had cheated on Joshua with Gary and that Joshua had found out. And he was supposedly saying that he was just going to let the show fall apart. He was not going to bother getting any investments for the show. There's some unnecessary plot twists involving, like, second bank accounts and co-conspirators who are under federal investigation for racketeering. But ultimately, they get this guy who's under indictment for racketeering to roll on them as well and says that Leslie, because the investing with that woman had fallen through, she was going to arrange a big drug deal so that she could get the money to finance the show and essentially supposedly not have to marry Joshua because she was apparently kind of stringing him along, according to the other people involved in this. Mm -hmm. So they now arrest her. At trial, the racketeering guy testifies that Leslie had done all of this because she didn't want to marry Joshua. And Wallace, Gary Wallace, testifies saying that Joshua knew where the money was coming from, aka this drug deal, and that he was going to call the cops. So they're all in the car together when this happens, when it goes down. And so Leslie tells the driver to stop and says to the driver, do it now. And then he shoots Joshua multiple times at Leslie's orders. On the stand, Leslie says that Gary gave the orders and that Gary said he'd kill me too if I said anything. But 
then Stone catches her in a lie because she said, he's like, didn't your record say that you hardly knew this driver? And she's like, yeah, hardly. I hardly knew him. So this was obviously Gary who orchestrated all of this. But then he Mm -hmm. manages to play the tape of her speaking at his chauffeur license reinstatement where she's like, I know him so well. (laughs) And she actually says, I would trust him with my life. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, they really laid it on thick on this recording. <laughs> yes, I would trust him with my life. Yeah. At a chauffeur license reinstate. Like, really? I she, don't think you need to go that far. She might as well have said at the beginning of it, just in case this gets played in a courtroom later, I want everyone to know that I really, I know him very well. Very well. <laughs> So our closing scene is Stone and Schiff learning that Leslie is going to file an appeal, which leads us to believe that she was found guilty at trial. And Stone is like, that's not, that's fine. She can file an appeal. She's going to lose anyway. And that's the end of the episode. Dun dun. Dun dun. That was a good one. A good recap or a good episode? A good recap for a decent episode. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, do you have any guesses? Are you ready? I I don't really have any guesses, so I'm excited. Okay. Well, this, okay. How about this? This, okay. I'm going to give you the, the name for it. I'm not going to give you the, the name of the, um. Person? Yeah, the survivor or victim. Okay. So this case, or this episode was inspired by the Cotton Club murder. Never heard of it. Let's start with some of the key players, and we'll start from the youth of a gentleman named Roy Raiden. Okay. So Raiden, like, from Mortal Kombat? (laughs) Not Raiden. Okay. (laughs) R-A-D-I-N. Okay. So Roy Raiden was born on November 13th, 1949, to Al Raiden, who was a Broadway promoter and a speakeasy owner. Cool. And Renee Raiden, a former showgirl. Okay. So for a time, the family, the Raiden family, lived in Long Island, New York, and eventually Al, the father, leaves his family behind and the parents end up divorcing, which leaves Roy Raiden to feel responsible for caring for both his mother and his younger sisters as a young boy. Okay. I believe he has two or three younger sisters. It's unclear. I thought it was two, but I've seen pictures of three female children so (laughs) maybe she was just a friend who was visiting for the day (laughs) maybe she was an invisible friend and i'm the only one that sees her oh my god maybe she was a ghost (laughs) Mm. so uh by the age of nine roy is reportedly spending his time playing poker with retirees at hotels i'm sorry a nine-year-old playing poker with retirees at hotels yes this is what he's doing to sort of mm, I would say think of it as an old-timey version of someone volunteering at, like, an old folks' home. Okay. But instead of playing, like, canasta, he's playing poker. It's kind of like the old boys club retirement club thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. So this is kind of what he does, and he ends up building, like, you know, little friendships with these people. And through doing this, he's able to kind of come up with a little bit of a hustle— at school, you know, he's nine, there's these fundraising events that him and his classmates are supposed to do. And he is always the, like, head of the class because he's using his customers. His customers are his friends at these retirement homes. Okay. So he's always making the most money, and he realizes he has this ability about him to sort of schmooze people and connect. And by the age of 16, he decides he needs to, you know, be better about 
helping out his family. He needs to make more money. So he drops out of high school and he dedicates his life to making a name for himself. I feel like people who seek fame just for seeking fame, it rarely ends up great. It usually does not, especially, especially back then. Yeah. And it's like he's born to like a showbiz family. It seems to be his sort of default. Like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be somebody. Right. He doesn't want to be a failure. So he decides to move to Florida where his dad lives and he moves in with him. So he leaves his family behind, but he continues to support them financially. So wait, he was living in New York? He was living in New York with his family. He was not having a lot of luck. So he was seeking fame in Florida? Well, you'll see. Okay. (laughs) Unlikely, but yes, yes. So he goes and gets a job in Florida doing, I'm going to, it's labeled as publicity. Okay. He was doing publicity for the Clyde Beatty Circus, which at that time, publicity for the circus was he would basically go to um, the cities or the areas where the circus was setting up and going to Uh be, you know, putting on the production. And he would do these like rallies, getting people excited about it. So he was like like a carnival barker. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But he was, he was pretty good at it. He was really good for the circus. All right. And he thought this would get him, you know, higher up, maybe producing his own type of show, but he's continuously turned down for raises. Okay. So when the job ends up not giving him a raise after his last ask for one, he just decides "I'm, I'm out of here. He's made enough relationships with the performers in the circus and other people along the way. And he decides to rally a little group of performers together, and they decide to put on their own act, separate from the circus. Okay. So they put on a show, and they tour for a week as a practice, and it's super successful. And he makes enough money from it to put on a 30-week tour for his second foray into this That's sort of pretty impressive. Thing. Exactly. It's really, really impressive. And he, it's, again, very successful. He's sort of known as a... Difficult person to work with, not because he, uh, I guess the vibe I got from the articles and stuff is that everybody liked working with him, but he was a challenge. You know, he was, Mm. he yelled a lot. He was very strict. He really wanted things his way, but evidently most people felt like it was successful. So they went with it. Okay. Yeah. People that were involved with working with him. One person that worked with him a lot was Tiny Tim. Do you remember Tiny Tim? I sure do. <laughs> so Tiny Tim got a lot of opportunities through Roy Radin. Um, okay. He attributes a lot of the successful part of his career to Roy Radin. And he even says that like the there was a period of time when Roy was writing acts for him. Because the shows he was putting on were very vaudeville. They were very vaudeville inspired. Sort of a return to traditional vaudeville, but with more modern, at that time, <laughs> modern performers. Okay, before you continue, I just have to, again, mention Sinisterhood, which is one of my favorite podcasts. They have an episode recently talking about the life of Phil Spector. Do you know his story? I know who he is, but I don't know his story, no. It is un-fucking-believable. Like, there were so many moments where I was like, what? Like, it's bananas. So if you, you, Matt, or you listeners want to hear an absolutely bonkers story, go listen to the Sinisterhood episode about Phil Spector. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> as you're describing this guy's, like, behavior, I was thinking about that episode. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have to check it out, especially since I've, yeah. So the second tour is really successful, and he is billing his show usually as some version of the Roy Radin vaude- Vaudeville Review. Okay. 
And he gets he eventually gets stars like Tommy Tiny Tim, I said, um, Milton Berle, a few mm. other performers along the way. And uh, Roy Radin quotes, Live, clean, family entertainment will outdraw porn and profanity every time. That's kind of the the way it's being billed. Okay. And so... <laughs> We're better than porn? Is there their marketing strategy? <laughs> I think he's trying to be like, this is a return to the good old days. Oh, you know, look okay. At like smut a that's return to now. morals and ethics. Yeah. yeah okay. like, look at this old-timey vaudeville sort of thing and look how popular it is and isn't that what we all want, you know? Gotcha. So it's interesting that that's how he bills it because, well, we'll see. So... <laughs> Over the next 14 years, now he started all this when he was around 16, I think. So over the next 14 years, he amasses millions, millions Holy shit. from okay. this, okay, from this type of act that he keeps putting on. And in fact, it says before he was 20, he was a millionaire. So he made his first millions within the first, you know, six years of his career. And this was back in like the 50s. This was the, no, this is the 70s. The 70s. Oh, okay, okay, okay. By the late 70s, that's sort of like his peak with the Vaudeville Act. He was running multiple tours a year. He had millions, as we said. And he decides that he always wanted to be respected in the world of show business. And even though he's really not achieving that level of success as far as respect, mm -hmm. he still lives a lifestyle that's very lavish. In 1975, Roy Radin buys a 70-acre mansion in the Hamptons. And mm, it boasts, ritzy. right? He moves back to the Hamptons from Florida. He has this huge, huge mansion. It has 66 rooms. And it becomes a party palace pretty quickly. Like many people in the 70s, he also develops a very hearty cocaine habit. <laughs> <laughs> and his reported spending on drugs weekly was 1500 to $3,500. Weekly? Weekly. Holy shit. In the 70s. For wow, that's so, intense. Yeah. And like I said, despite all of this bravado, his work by most people is considered, unfortunately, like trash. Like okay. B-rate B things. All of the people on his vaudeville actor are washed up at this point. Mm. And it's usually described in articles as schlock. <laughs> okay. Which I had to look up. <laughs> but it basically means <laughs> is trash. Is schlock Yiddish? Perhaps. Sounds Yiddish. So... Roy knows It is what... Yiddish. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. I figured you'd look it up. So Roy knows this reputation he has. He refuses to accept it. It's something that bothers him a lot. Roy Radin, he is pretty well known because of all of this and his reputation. But in 1980, his name comes up when he is implicated as being involved in a violent sexual assault. Okay. So 21-year-old actress Melanie Haller... She's most known for her role as Angie Grabowski on Welcome Back, Cotter. Not sure if you watched that back in the day. I did not, no. Uh, I watched That was um, the follow-up to Happy Days, wasn't it? I don't think so. I think it actually came out before Happy Days. Wasn't it when he becomes a teacher? No. That well, might I thought be it was else. when uh, Henry Winkler. Oh, okay. I thought he became a high school teacher in Welcome Back, Cotter, but I guess I'm confusing two shows. You might be. Gabe Kaplan plays uh, Mr. Cotter on okay. Welcome Back, Cotter, and it's in like the 70s, I think. It's a great show. It was a great show, at least. Yeah, so that's what she's most known for. She goes to a party at Raiden's Mansion, this big house that we know about now, on April 12th, 1980. And the next day, she's discovered beaten and unconscious on a commuter train to Manhattan. Jesus. 
She claims when, you know, she's in the hospital and all this, that she was beaten and raped at the mansion and that Raiden, among other attendees, filmed it. Ugh. So Raiden, of course, asserts that this was untrue. The defense team's strategy in her case is unsurprising that they say that there were wild sex games happening and she had consented to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And eventually, under the pressure of a lot of press, however, in 1981, businessman Robert McCage, or McCage pled guilty to the assault against her. Okay. So guess how much time he got for it? Two years. 30 days. Oh, God. Unreal. I was literally going to guess a week, and I was like, oh, I hope it's longer than that. <laughs> 30 days for confessing. So, wow. Raiden, in this... In, The same trial or related trial is charged with possession of LSD, cocaine, and a handgun, as well as menacing the witness. Okay. His fiance at the time, Tony Follett, is also brought up on charges, but all of these charges are dropped eventually. Hmm. And Mm -hmm. this isn't the crime that we're covering, so that's where the story ends on that um, Hmm. portion of Raiden's life. But I'm sure we can deduce how those charges probably ended (laughs) up going away. Yeah. By the early 1980s, um, his fiance Tony that we just mentioned, and he had married and divorced. So in 1980, they were engaged, and by the early 80s, they're already divorced. All right. He became increasingly obsessed with his prospect of being a filmmaker, but everyone he meets with sort of looks at him as sort of pathetic. Mm, um, yeah. Everyone who speaks to him sort of passes him up, and he's really looked at as a joke. Meanwhile, he's neglected the only enterprise that's made him any money, which is the vaudeville circuit, and he's sort of falling off there as well. He's not bringing in the money he needs anymore, and his like physical persona, which he's always in commercials promoting his vaudeville act, he's very larger than life. He wears mm-hmm. like very flashy suits, um, hats. He's got like curly, curly hair. He's, uh, I want to say six seven or he's very Holy tall shit. he's, he's a very big tall. guy okay. i think he's like he's at least six four and everyone like talks calls him like a giant he's very big so one of the nicknames that goes around for him is the 300 pound boy millionaire <laughs> i think the episode focuses on like the victim being fat in that because yes. this yeah. guy's name all over the press his weight is brought up a lot okay in 1983 Rory Radin takes a chance. He decides he's got to put everything in, and he sells his mansion in the Hamptons and moves to Hollywood to pursue success in movie production. Okay, do you remember, there was an episode a while back where we covered the story of somebody who, like, spent all of their fortune to self-produce. Oh, oh my God, it was Dr. Dr. Kevorkian. Kevorkian. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Still want to see that, that movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> so... He moves to L.A. and he hires a gentleman named Jonathan Lawson to be his secretary. In the meantime, while he's trying to find a project or get one of his projects off the ground, he's making money as a manager or agent to different stars. And he does pretty okay okay at it. Um, One of his biggest clients is Damond Wilson of Sanford & Son. So Mm -hmm. he's doing okay, but he is hungry for more. At a party, he meets Elaine Jacobs who goes by Lainey, Lainey Jacobs. And they hit it off right away. They share similar aspirations. She is a fashion designer, or a former fashion designer at the time. And she clearly has a lot of wealth. She's amassed a lot in her life. She's very flashy. 
and her dreams are to become a producer, just like Raiden. She wants a career okay. change. Hmm. He has not been successful in the same way she has, and he feels very connected to her. So very quickly, he's meshed into her sort of circle. Okay. And he starts going to parties with her, and he is seen hanging a lot with friends of hers like boxer Tally Rogers and meeting bigger names like Robert Evans. So Bob Evans at the time, well, Bob Evans previously had made big films that we know such as Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby. Okay. But at that time, he had failed to make a movie successful in a long time. Okay. And so, so his star was kind of fading. Exactly. Exactly. The three of them, so Roy Raiden, Lainey Jacobs, and her friend Robert Evans, they have a meeting and they want to discuss possibilities for them, you know? So they're they're like trying to figure out a comeback vehicle for all three of them, basically. Exactly. Like a comeback vehicle for him and then like a starting off point for the other two. Okay. So they have a meeting and they discuss an idea that Raiden has for a movie called The Cotton Club. And it's going to be based on a real-life venue, a legendary venue in Harlem, where I think it was like in the 40s, I want to say, it was an intersection for the mob and for black talent. Okay. And so that's his big idea for a movie, and they kind of all agree that it's a good idea. In April of 1983, they cut a deal, officially, for Evans and Raiden to earn 45% of the film. Okay. Revenue or whatnot. And Lainey was going to get a finder's fee of 50000 for connecting Raiden with Jacobs. Um, and then the other 10% of that, you know, pot goes to investors. Okay. Lainey wasn't thrilled about this. Um, she really wanted half of what Raiden was going to get. One month later, on May 13th, 1983, Raiden is staying at the Regency... In L.A., though, not at Luann's Regency <laughs> in New York City. <laughs> She's, uh, he's staying at the Regency in L.A. with his assistant, and this is sort of his usual hotel. Okay. They have set up a dinner for to meet with Lainey. She wants to talk about the film and maybe renegotiating or, you know, just seeing what's going to go on. So they set up a dinner at a restaurant called La Scala, and Raiden planned for demand his uh client that's in sanford and son he had planned for him to be at the restaurant and then interrupt the dinner at a certain time to like get him out of there because okay. he wasn't down with giving laney anything else besides the finder's fee and mm-hmm. so he wanted a good out so the dinner is planned for may 13th 1983 11 p.m lawson who is raiden's assistant who is back at the hotel okay he gets a call from an unidentified woman looking for Tally. That's the friend that Raiden knows through Lainey, the po- the boxer we just mentioned him briefly. Right. Okay. And so he's like, I don't, I don't know where I would, I would find him. Why would you call me? Why mm-hmm. would you call Raiden for Tally? Like, why don't you just call Lainey? And the woman just hangs up. Hmm. So he thinks that's kind of suspicious and weird, and he thinks like at least Raiden should know about it. So he calls La Scala. They tell him that he's not there he's not at the restaurant and he hadn't been there all night and neither has elaine hmm. demand we know has been waiting there for hours so he gets in touch he gets demand on the phone and it's like what's going on like where are they and he says I, he has no idea um he's been waiting for hours and they never showed up hmm. so his assistant lawson calls around all night and he's unable to find anybody 
he finally gets on the phone with Lainey, or he leaves a message to Lainey, and she ends up calling back and saying, I, I don't know what happened to him either. We were in the limo, we were on the way, and then we had a big fight. He didn't, he didn't want to talk to me anymore, he kicked me out of the limo, and I had to find my own way home. Hmm. So, all of this comes out, and, you know, it's a big deal. Everyone's looking for Roy Raiden. And upon the disappearance of her son coming out publicly, his mother, Renee, puts up a $1 million reward for his safe return. Okay. She also puts a 100K reward up for anyone who can call and give details to anybody who was involved. She puts out in the paper uh, that he had told her only like a month ago, he said, quote, Mom, if anything happens to me, know that I love you which was unusual for him hmm. to say to her, and it stuck out in her mind, which is why as soon as the disappearance happened, she was willing to put up all this money. Hmm. Okay. June 10th, 1983. So this is about a month later. The disappearance is on May 13th. June 10th, 1983. A beekeeper comes across a body in a canyon as he's looking for a location to put his new bee colony, which I thought was mm -hmm. kind of a <laughs> side note, kind of a fun detail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but back to the the horror, um, it's it's a corpse. It's mummified. Um, it's withered away. And when they, you know, he calls authorities, they discover that the cause of death was gunshot wounds to the head, to the back of the okay. head, with a twenty two, uh -huh. and there were thirteen gunshot wounds to I, the back of the head. It's unclear if they're all to the back of the head. Clearly the ones that killed him were. I would be surprised if they were all to the back of the head. But that's what he it must said. have looked his head would have looked like a piece of Swiss cheese. Exactly, exactly. Um they are un unable to identify him right away. Um he is wearing a beautiful or let's say not let's not say beautiful. He's wearing a very 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 expensive watch and a very very expensive three-piece suit. Okay. So this explains the inspiration for the episode. Exactly. <laughs> they determine when they like run tests on him that he was murdered approximately May 13th. Okay. Uh, which was the day that Roy Raiden had disappeared. And they finally are able to identify it as Roy Raiden through dental records. Mm -hmm. Pretty quickly around the same time, Elaine Jacobs puts her house up for sale and she moves to New York to pursue her career in uh, movie production. That's Lainey, right? Yes. Okay. So Lainey ends up calling. It comes out that she had called Evans on May 13th. That's the, Bob Evans, who, you know, the deal was with. And yeah, he was had, the actor, the comeback actor. The comeback producer. Wasn't there a famous actor who wanted to come back with the two of them? There was a famous, like, movie maker that wanted to come back. He had made oh. Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby. He wasn't in Oh, them. I'm sorry. I thought he was an actor. Oh, okay, that no, no, sense. no. He was, like, a filmmaker. Okay. I apologize. He used to be the head of Paramount, I believe, at a, for a time. Jesus. Okay. Yeah, back in his heyday. But, like I said, now he's he's known as, like, not only is his star fading in that way, but everyone knows he's, like, heavily into drugs and stuff, too. So Gotcha. So Lainey gets him on the phone on May 13th, which is the same day that she was going to have this meeting with, with Roy in the daytime and says like, listen, I want to be more involved. I want more, more of a cut. This isn't fair. The finder's fee. And he says reportedly to her that he's okay with that. That's fine. But it's not up to me. Like you figure that out among the two of you and I'm fine with whatever you want as long as I keep my 45%. So she allegedly um, decides that that's why she was having the meeting with him. 
mm-hmm. to talk about it. But what she says is that she wanted to actually get bought out of the deal. She didn't want to be part of it at all is what she says. So mm-hmm. the story that's running is that, you know, the conversation was that she wanted more money, but she's like, no, I wanted to get out of the deal and it would have been better for me. LA detective Carlos Avila is assigned to the case and he pursues it pretty tenaciously um, t- chasing down every lead. It's, it's getting a lot of press because of who he was and he was such a bombastic character mm-hmm. and Lainey is sort of known too. And so they talk to her a bunch and they don't get too much out of her. She says that maybe it was the driver, you know, there's really no evidence tying her to the crime. She was just there. She was the last she person was just... to see him. Yeah, she was in the limo and got kicked out, supposedly. Exactly, exactly. And there's really no evidence beyond that. So she says, why don't you find out about the driver? I don't really know who the driver was, but that would be a good place to start. And so they try to look into it. They're having a hard time finding who the driver was, but they do find that the car was rented by a Bill Menser. Okay. Bill Menser, all they know about him initially is that he was formerly uh, either head of or pretty prominent security figure for larry flint of hustler fame wow (laughs) yes weird connections okay right so september 19th 1983 this is two months after the discovery of the body there's a drug bust at lax and menser this gentleman who is um who rented the car that they don't know yet yes he is involved and so this gives them an opportunity to look into him because there's enough, gotcha. you know, there's something else that is related to him. So they search his place. Um, they don't find really anything implicating him, but they do find something curious. There's these photos of him, like he's wearing army fatigues and he's holding, like, I don't want to say semi-automatic weapons, but they're like, that's what I would rifles? think. They, they're big. They look like okay. rifles, you know? Um, okay. And the area that they're in in the pictures it's him with two unidentified men in the series of photos the area that they're in is the same exact canyon where they end up finding rory raiden's body oh okay and so they're like okay we have this on you and when he finds out about this he immediately lawyers up and refuses to speak to anybody uh-uh. okay while this is happening in 1984 at the same time as all of this is happening the movie the cotton club actually comes out <laughs> so they actually did make a movie? They actually made a movie called The Cotton Club. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And he, at the time, was huge for doing The Godfather and that style of movie. And so this was, you know, slated to be a big, big deal. Richard Gere starred in it. Um, there's a lot of famous people that were in it. Diane Lane. Mm-hmm. It wow. ended up being a $58 million flop. total flop in the box office and yeah so there's a lot about the cotton club you can read i read a bunch of articles with all of the sort of mishaps that went into getting the cotton club created Uh uh-huh this was one of them obviously all the controversy over the missing rory raiden and then his uh murder and yada 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 but there were a lot of other things people pulling in and coming out that sounded so filthy but you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then like funding issues and then, you know, all of this hoopla about how great it was going to be with all these big actors. And then it came out and it was such a flop. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the Cotton Club at the very end because I have a little update on it. But okay. So that's what ends up happening. This whole big thing that he wanted to do ended up being a flop anyway, even with the best people involved. It's kind of sad. Yeah. So 1987, 
the the case has gone cold. They couldn't get anywhere further on it. They have no solid evidence. They have a few suspects, but that's it. The cold case gets reassigned from Avila to Sergeant Stoner. They look into Menser, which is the guy who rented the car and who had those un- unusual photos. Yes. And they're able to find his ex-wife. So they go to her and they try to get some information out of her. She doesn't have a lot to tell them about Menser. She seems unwilling to talk to them. But she does say the two other men in the photos are Alex Marty and William Ryder. And both of these men were also part of William um, of uh, Larry Flint's security team. Security, okay. So that's how they all sort of know each other. And so they go, okay, well, we're going to go track down these people. They're able to find William Ryder, and he says, I'll talk to you, but I need protection um, if you want me to co- cooperate, because these people are extremely, extremely dangerous. Hmm. And they go, okay, you know, look, that's fine. So they take him. They give him um, 24-hour security, and they put him in witness protection, and they take him to Caswell Canyon, which is where they found Roy Raiden's body, and he shows them exactly where the photos were taken, and he also shows them exactly where the body was found, which was not in all the news. He's able to explain the murder and how it went down, and he says that um, Marty and Menser, the two other men involved, obviously, in Mm -hmm. the photos... Mm -hmm. That they refer to, uh, they refer to Roy Raiden as Godzilla because he was like the big catch, and he was so large. So they 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 didn't have a lot of remorse. It was like <laughs> a big fun thing for them. Wow. Yes. So less than a year later, in 1988, on July 7th, Menser decides he's going to cooperate, and he says he's going to tell all. He says that you know he was involved. He implicates a few other people that were involved. Firstly, was Tally Rogers, who's the gentleman we kind of talked about a little bit as someone that was in Elaine's circle. Yeah, the boxer. Exactly. And his nickname in the whole thing is the Lieutenant. Okay, they don't really say why. But (laughs) he was a drug courier, and he would go from Miami to L.A. repeatedly and, you know, transfer cocaine. Yeah. In or around the time of all this going down, Tally goes missing, along with 10 kilos of cocaine and 250K. Wow, okay. So the plan is to shake down Raiden because they believe he knows where Tally is, and they also believe that he might be involved in the stealing of the cocaine and the money because he's down on his luck, he's got a nasty cocaine habit, (laughs) and he is in Tally's circle. Mm -hmm. So their plan is we're going to go kidnap uh, Roy Raiden, we're going to get information out of him to find Tally. So the plan is a gentleman named Robert Lowe. <laughs> Not the Robert Lowe, obviously. Not Rob Lowe. He keeps coming up, though. Yeah, he <laughs> does. Podcast. So a driver uh, named Bob Lowe is enlisted. There's not a lot of information on him, like how he was involved, besides that he was the driver, but he's, he's named as one of the four people involved. Bob Lowe is driving, as we knew before, Elaine Jacobs and Roy Raiden. They're driving down Sunset, and they pull over. And Elaine gets out of the car, and then Menser and Marty, who were following behind, get in the car. So now in the back seat, we have Menser on one side, Bill Menser, Alex Marty on the other side, and Roy Raiden in the middle. And mm. they're both reportedly holding guns to his private parts. And they're saying, <laughs> okay. if you do anything, you know, your life is over. And they go for a 60-mile drive, holding him hostage in the car, down to the canyon. 
and mm-hmm. they say that so they ask him like where is where's the money where's the drugs and where is tally and he says he has no idea he's begging for his life eventually menser says that alex marty lost his cool ran out of patience and uh shoots roy raiden in the back of the head wow okay. and then he just continually shot him afterwards because he was so angry that this whole plan yielded nothing mm-hmm. and menser says he got wrapped up in it and took one shot hmm. of the 17 or whatever they also say that elaine jacobs set the whole thing up because she actually was a high-end drug dealer to the stars and it was her okay. cocaine that had gone missing mm, okay so everyone thought that her motive if she was involved was going to be to get her money back for the deal but it turns out she was also being implicated for being a, a big drug dealer it was uh to the colombian cartel so she was afraid for her life if she didn't come up with where this money and drugs had gone and that's mm. kind of where we're going with this which is why they let her out of the car gotcha so that's what he says. At the time, Elaine Jacobs is nowhere to be found. No one can find her. She's gone off the radar. Hmm. In September of 1988, which is two months after Menser tells this story, they find her. She's living in uh, Okeechobee, I think it's called, or Okeechobee, <laughs> Okeechobee, Florida. At... Oh, Okeechobee. Oh, that's it, right? I, th- <laughs> I think it is I a funny so. name, so I wanted to say. <laughs> Uh, so she's living in okeechobee florida under the name karen greenberger she had married a man named larry greenberger if you're gonna change your name why would you go with karen greenberger i know well i get i why karen because greenberger was just by marriage but i don't even know what her (laughs) former one was but yeah that's where she's going under now larry greenberger is no longer in the picture and he's actually died by suicide But she's under investigation for his murder because they don't think it was a suicide. Okay. So they found where she's living and what her name and alias all that is, but they still can't find her. They just find where she was and they find out, oh, not only is she under a false name, under that false name, she's under investigation for a homicide. Mm. So they're trying to track her down and they're having a really hard time. But the local police department gets in touch with her attorney and they say, listen, we don't know what's going on um, with your client. But we need to talk to her. We're not going to arrest her. We promised her. We're not going to arrest her for the so-called murder of Larry. We just want a statement from her. And so they make the deal that she's going to come and give a statement. So on October 2nd, 1988, a little less than a month later, she comes forward. She goes down to the station. She gives them her statement. They thank her very much. And then they arrest her for the murder of Roy Raiden. And she's pissed, of course, you know, and uh, her lawyer is losing their mind and saying, you promised. And they're like, well, we didn't arrest her for that. We arrested her for another murder. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they, uh, you know, they send her back to, I guess, New York to stand trial and all that. Evans is also implicated in all this. Bob Evans, obviously. But he, during his, during trial, immediately just takes the fifth and through the whole the whole trial, he only takes the fifth the whole time. Hmm. On July 22nd, 1990, the trial concludes, and the jury finds all four people guilty of murder for um, for Lowe and Jacobs, so that's the driver and Elaine, they get yes. second-degree murder. Uh, okay. The other two are sentenced to first-degree, or found guilty of first-degree murder. And they were the ones holding the guns to his junk? Exactly. Okay. And they all are sentenced uh, for life. Wow. 
Exactly. So, you know, everything kind of comes crashing down by 1990. Uh-huh. The, uh, that's basic. I think everyone remained in prison. I don't know what the whereabouts of them are now. It was kind of hard to get updates on what happened with them. It seems like they all basically just went to prison and stayed. Hmm. I believe so. The only other things that are sort of interesting or updates about it were the gentleman Metzger, the man who, like, told all. There are theories that are explored that he could be related to the um, Zodiac killer oh, in some way. Huh. Okay. So there's theories... I feel like everybody wants to connect everybody to the Zodiac killer. Yeah, and when I, when I kind of looked at them, tried to chase down these leads or whatever, I don't see a lot that shows okay. a connection. Um, even on Murderpedia, if you go to Murderpedia, there's like two articles on it about him being maybe connected to the Zodiac killer. And one of them has these renderings. Oh, God. And I just think even just on that, like there's a photo of this guy, Metzger. And then there's a photo of the rendering of, uh, so there's a police sketch of the Zodiac for these particular um, crimes. And in the middle of them, someone has taken the photo of Metzger and just drawn in like Microsoft Paint black eyeglasses on him. <laughs> uh-huh. And they're like, look how much that looks like the photo. That doesn't really stand up for me as a great piece of evidence. Evidence, yeah. <laughs> but it's out there, and it still exists. It is an alternative theory that exists. Um, they also go a little bit into the possibility that Roy Raiden and Metzger were somehow related to the Son of Sam killings. Okay. I don't know exactly how they connect this. Um, we started watching the Son of Sam documentary series that's new on Netflix, I forget what it's called. I think it might just oh, be called yeah. Sons of Sam or something like that. Yeah, I think Sons of Sam. Yeah, we're we're two episodes into it. They haven't talked about the connection yet, but it se- I've read that in this documentary series, they actually do talk about the connection. Okay. I didn't finish watching it because I'm going to be honest, I don't love the documentary series. Mm. I don't okay. think it's great. I think it's an interesting story, but I don't think it's told in a very compelling way. So I'm going to finish watching it because I think it's interesting, but... Um, more on that later. I tried to do a little research to see what the connection was. It seems like it's just a theory. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like there's any sort sort of hard evidence, and it looks like timelines don't really match up, but I guess they present it as an option. Hmm. Um, and the only other thing I have about this case is about the Cotton Club movie itself. Okay. So, like we said, it was a big flop when it came out. And one thing that is, I think, kind of cool in 2019, it got re-released, and it got um, a different edit. That's right, yes. So it looks like, much to um, Coppola's dismay, when he released it, a lot of the story was cut, because of it. it had a real focus on the black cast members, and that wasn't what was... The studio wanted. Yeah, exactly. And he, he reportedly fought for it, but ultimately bended, as most people would. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spent... In the 2000s, it says that he spent 500k or close to it restoring the film, and he added 24 minutes and removed 13 minutes from the original cut. So it gets re-released in 2019 under the title Cotton Club, en- Cotton Club Encore. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. And most reviews that I've read about it say that this there was one article on Vanity Fair that talks about all the corrections it made to like a damaging narrative that it used to have. Okay, um, uh-huh. which is cool. And then most reviews say that this version is far better than the original. 
Um, and it shows that the film actually focused largely on the cast member Gregory Hines and his and other performers of color that were related to him in the story. Gotcha. And so this version of it talks about all of their storylines and cuts out a lot of the unnecessary parts of the white storylines. Hmm, and great. even though the film falls into most of the classic mistakes and tropes that you know, films did even when they did have members of the black community in them. Yes. Um, one quote that I read from an article just says, the film falls a little short of really understanding what its black characters were up against. Perhaps because it was the way, or perhaps because its way into the period is so thoroughly rooted in the era's movies, gangster films, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think whatever the film ends up being, I think it was trying to do something good. And I'm glad that, you know, even though Roy Radin's film made him no money and made nobody any money, I'm glad that it did something good. Um, and even though it came from the mind of someone who, I'm sorry, but at the end of the day is implicated in a horrible sexual assault and probably <laughs> right. tons of other ones. So <sighs> yeah. all we know is that Roy Radin's murder was solved for all, you know, what do you call that? Intents and purposes. <laughs> Thank you. um and uh you know the people who were responsible are paying and unfortunately the people who are responsible for the you know other heinous crimes involved got off in 30 days yeah and that is the story of roy raiden and the cotton club murder dang what a weird it's so funny like i was watching the episode and i was like why like it felt like they were trying to cram so many like twists and turns and random characters in, but the actual story had so many twists and turns and like random people's involvement in it. Yeah. And it's, it's so weird for me to finish a story with like a, I don't want to say correct conclusion, but like the people who did it say they did it basically in just different ways and they all pay for it seemingly in an equal way. Um, I had a hard time finding out where they all are now, to be honest. So I don't even know if they're all still in prison or if they're all still alive or, I mean, it's, you know, 2020 now, 2021, geez. If anyone out there knows anything else that I couldn't find, I I couldn't find a lot about them today. Well, great job. Thank you for telling that story. It was, I'm sure, very complicated to research. It was really interesting because there was so many other things that were involved in it that weren't necessarily proven or until later or you know that were conjecture or that he said she said um yeah and then the stuff about the movie and then the sexual assault that happened that i read about early on just totally threw me for a loop for the rest of the the rest of the case um so i started trying to look into that crime and then i thought oh i'm really in a rabbit hole here so it was a little challenging to to keep it focused (laughs) but it was a really interesting really interesting case i'm just glad that you mentioned the beekeeper I mean, how could you not? Yeah. How could you not? (laughs) What would you rate the episode? So I am giving the episode for watchability a B minus. I thought it was pretty interesting. I liked it. I didn't mind it too much. Um, And then for crime, I'm actually going to give it a B minus as well. Because I feel like so many of the things that happened in the actual true case were reflected in some way in the show like even the mobster angle that they did in the show at the beginning you Mm -hmm. know sort of like ties into the cotton club movie being a sort of gangster movie so yeah i thought that was clever and i thought a lot of the little details like that like that shirt and the three-piece suit and all that nonsense yes so i thought that was clever ways to tie in um 
actual details of the crime into the show. So I'm going to give it a B minus all around. What about you? I think I would give it a, I'm going to give it a C plus for watchability. Mm -hmm. I think recapping it, recapping it, it was one of those episodes where they talked to like 85,000 people and had a bunch of cut scenes. So it's more challenging to recap those episodes without being like, and then this person, and then this person. (laughs) Totally. Um, So C plus for watchability. I would say, I mean, I feel like they stuck pretty closely to the story of like more like stuck as close to the story as any other episode we've ever watched and did so in a way that like didn't make it more problematic you yeah, know what i mean 100%. so i'm gonna say of all episodes i think this one gets an a minus for how Ooh. it dealt with the crime wow good first job. episode <laughs> that is pretty good law and yeah. order you're doing it <laughs> you're doing it <laughs> Well, Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast, and if you enjoy listening to us and think that other folks might too, the best thing that you can do to help us is rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen to our episodes, because that really helps other people find us. Exactly. And the best way for people to find out about podcasts is really through word of mouth. Think about it. So tell a friend, post about us on Reddit, or find other ways to spread the word about us. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We love getting emails, so feel free to send us a note to say hi. And if you'd like to learn more about us and find information about our show, um, upcoming newsletters, merch, and our brand new Patreon, which is now available and live, check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. And we'd like to shout out our newest Patreon members, Kathy, Eli, and Nicole. Thank you so much for subscribing to our Patreon. And we encourage everyone else to as well, because it's really good. It's really good. We got a lot of great stuff over there. Yes. And thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.